grab a Bible this morning and find Luke 18. We're going to look at the first eight verses of Luke 18 this morning. There's an outline in the bulletin if you'd like to follow along on the outline. Luke 18 is the passage. We're going to read it in just a minute. I'm going to give you the big idea in just a minute. But before we do that, I want you to think with me a little bit. The passage we're going to look at is about prayer. And prayer is a funny thing. Uh, Prayer is one of those things in the life of a Christian where there are a lot of folks who are followers of Jesus who feel like they're not good at prayer. They don't know how to do it. They're frustrated with it. It's confusing to them. There's a lot of other Christians who feel like it comes naturally to them. They know how to do it. It's easy. And the strange thing is when I listen to some of those people actually pray, I listen to the ones who think they don't know how to do it, and I say, I think you got it. And I listen to those who think they know how to do it, and I think, what are you talking about? And so it's a tricky thing, and the things that Jesus says this morning are helpful. Let me start off with a quote. I don't have a, a source for this quote, but I've heard it many times. Um, maybe you've heard this. When we pray, we all pray to the same God. I've, I've heard people say that a lot. I think the last time that I heard somebody say that was when the Pope visited the United States and he was touring around New York City and he went to Ground Zero and they had a big ceremony and they went down in part of the museum and uh, they had this interfaith prayer service. And uh, it was a Friday afternoon and I was home with my kids and I was watching this and there's the Pope and uh, a Buddhist guy and a Hindu guy and a this and a that and all these sorts of people up there and they're praying and somebody at some point shared this sentiment, when we pray We all pray to the same God. And so I've heard people talk about this. Maybe you have when it's an interfaith setting, you know, Christians and Buddhists and Catholics and all whoever's there and we're all feeling like we're on the same page. I've also heard this a lot in an interdenominational setting. And what I mean there is you have a group of Baptists and maybe you got some charismatics there for the event and you got some non-denominational people and maybe some Methodists and a Presbyterian and we're all there and somebody sort of throws this idea out. Well, when we pray, when we worship, we're all singing or we're all praying to the same God. Can we just be honest? No, we're not. That doesn't really jive with the sort of tolerant, let's all get along, let's all just agree uh, that everything and every worldview and every belief is valid, but we're not. And you can just sort of take the, the let's all get together, feel good, mumbo jumbo, and just at the end of the day say, can we just be honest and say we are not praying to the same God. Let me give you a quote from one of my favorite authors. This is a quote I've shared with you before. It's from a guy named A.W. Tozer. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. When you think about God, what pops into your mind when you're thinking about him is the most important thing about you. And when you have this sort of interfaith uh, prayer service deal and the Pope's there leading it. I'm just telling you, you can go right down the row and the things that pop into their minds when they think about God are very different. And let me say something else that may surprise some of you, some of you it may be not. If you took all of the Christian pastors, quote unquote Christian, Protestant pastors in Odessa, Texas and lined them up on that stage, you would find very different things in the things that they believed about God. Very different Some of them might shock you how different those ideas might be. 
What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I came across another quote this week. Our staff and our elders are reading a book. The book's called The Whole Story of the Bible in 16 Verses. And uh, one of the beginning chapters says this, The way we think about God shapes the way we think about everything else. The way you think about God shapes the way you think about everything else. It shapes the way you think about prayer. And the thing that pops into your mind when you think about God is very, very important. And we need to be religiously, intellectually, morally honest enough to just say, we don't all think the same things about God. You can line them up across the front at an interfaith service, or you can line them up across the front at an interdenominational service. We don't all think the same things, and that's an important difference, and we need to acknowledge that, and then we need to say, you know what, but the things that we think about God are important. They matter. If you agree with Tozer, it's the most important thing about you, and if you agree with Bruno, Chris Bruno, he says, it shapes everything else in your life. I think that's the kind of stuff that Jesus is getting at in Luke 18 because he's talking about prayer and what he's saying here does not validate any old prayer all prayer your prayer my prayer he's teaching us what kind of prayer is true prayer what it should look like and what it should not look like so this is the big idea this is on your outline the big idea is that the son of man wants his people to always pray and not lose heart until he returns as the king of all kings and I know there is a typo on your outline the word lost should be lose. I'll blame Mallory, and Mallory can blame me, and we'll flip a coin, and we'll just say we missed it. The Son of Man wants his people to always pray and not lose heart until he returns as the king who will rule all kings. That's the big idea. And when we read this first verse, you'll see right where that comes from. Look with me at Luke 18, beginning in verse 1. He, that is Jesus told them, that is the disciples. Jesus told the disciples a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, as we come and we sing to you and we talk to you, as we pray this morning, we want our prayer to be honoring to you. We want it to be genuine. We want to do it the right way. And as we look at these verses where Jesus tells a, a story to teach us about prayer, we pray and we ask and we beg and we plead that you would give us eyes to see the truth, give us hearts to receive it. Father, where maybe our prayer life does not line up with what you would have it to be, help us to change, help us to repent, and Father, help us to persevere in prayer, 
is Jesus says here that we would always pray and we wouldn't lose heart. Speak to us this morning through your word. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Very simply this morning, I want to talk about the parable itself, and then I want to try to apply it to your life into my life. And so these are on your outline. I didn't give you blanks to fill in, but I want you to follow along with me because unless you really understand the parable, the application that follows may or may not be what you expect to come. But if we nail these things down, we're on the right track. So first of all, let's just talk about the parable. First of all, I want you to remember that when Jesus told parables, he intended them to conceal truth and reveal truth. Both of those things are true. When Jesus speaks a parable, a lot of the times we think about parables and we say, well, parables, that's Jesus sort of putting the cookies down on the low shelf. That's Jesus sort of making it easy for us to understand, making it really simple for us. We're dull and, and we just have a hard time understanding, and so Jesus makes it simple with a parable. But if you listen to Jesus himself in the Gospels, Jesus says to the disciples, for example, in Luke 8, I teach him parables so that some people get it and some don't. Some are going to track with me and they're going to understand what I'm saying. Some aren't going to have a clue. That means when you come to this parable, be careful. When you come to any parable, be careful. Don't just rush in and sort of read it and make your own application. You really got to think about it. You really got to think about what Jesus is saying and the type of argument that he's using. So, number one, parables are designed to reveal truth and to conceal truth. Number two, thinking about parables in general and this one in particular. In the context, this parable is related to what Jesus said about his return as the king who will rule all kings. And I want you to just jump back up to Luke 17, verse 22. We looked at this last week. He, Jesus, said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see the days, see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. Put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. You love Jesus. You've given your life to Jesus. You are literally following Jesus around, hanging on his every word. You don't understand most of what he's saying, but this is pretty clear. The day is coming when you will long to see me, and you won't. Now, if you're one of the disciples, that's kind of a downer, right? I mean, I guess you appreciate the honesty and Jesus shooting you straight, but you hear that and you say, oh man, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun. We want to be with you. We want to see you come. We want you to be the king who's going to rule over all kings. We're longing for your return. That's what they're talking about in chapter 17. And Jesus says the day's coming where you will long for all of those things and you're not going to see it. And now he starts to talk about prayer, verse 1 in chapter 18. He's teaching about prayer. He's telling this parable to the effect, for the purpose, for the reason that they would always pray and not lose heart. You say, well, why would they lose heart? Well, Jesus just talked about that in chapter 17. They might lose heart because they're, they're frustrated, they're discouraged, they're disappointed. They're longing for his return and it just doesn't happen. And maybe they just sort of get to a place of spiritual frustration. Jesus says, don't get there. Always pray and don't ever lose heart. Number three, this is a big one. You're going to get tired of me talking about this one this morning. This parable is based on contrast, not comparison. And I've heard some crazy applications of this parable. To our prayer lives. And when I think about those things that I've heard that are so far out in left field, 
just nutty, I think they missed this point. Jesus is not making a comparison here. He's making a contrast here. He's not asking us to look for similarities. He's asking us to think about the differences. And so the parable is really pretty simple. Jesus says, once upon a time, there's a judge. And this particular judge did not fear God or other people. He did not respect folks. Translation, Jesus could have made it a little bit shorter if he wanted to and just said, the guy was a jerk. He was a total jerk. He did not love God, fear God, worship God, serve God. And he didn't give a flip about other people. You know any politicians like that? So there's this hypothetical politician. And he's not a nice guy. And in his jurisdiction, Jesus says there's a widow. He makes the woman a widow intentionally in the parable to say she's all alone. She has no one to stick up for her, to defend her, to fight for her. And in this society, in this culture, she's probably extraordinarily poor. When you read about widows, especially in the Gospel of Luke, you read about people who are disenfranchised, they're helpless, they're powerless, they have no money, they have no means to bribe a corrupt judge. She can't do it. She knows, if I really want justice, I'm going to have to slide him something under the table. But I don't have anything. I don't have anybody to stick up for me. But the one thing she does have is persistence. Translation, she's a nag. And she gets in his ear, and she gets in his ear, and she gets in his ear, and she won't drop it. And she shows up early when he comes into the office, and she's there talking, and she comes late, and she's, she just she won't drop the issue. You say, what's the issue? It doesn't matter. It's not the point of the story. She just won't drop it. And finally, this judge, who's not a very nice guy, says one day, you know, I don't do the right thing because it's the right thing. I do it because it benefits me, because of what I can get out of it. And clearly, this woman is not going to benefit me in any way financially. She doesn't have any uh, connections in society that can further my agenda. But she's driving me crazy. She is driving me absolutely out of my mind bonkers. And so if I just do what she wants me to do, maybe she'll shut up. That's his thought process. He doesn't do the right thing because it's, it's the right thing. He does the right thing to get the woman who's annoying him, who's nagging him, to go away. And in the end, the woman gets her quote-unquote justice, not because it's right, but just because the judge wants the woman to go away. That's the story. And in that little interesting story, Jesus wants you and I to learn something about prayer. But if you don't get this, you're not going to get what Jesus is trying to say to you. Jesus is not asking us to make comparisons between God and the judge or us and the woman. It's all based on contrast. Is Jesus using a form of Jewish argument known as arguing from the lesser to the greater? Meaning, if this one thing is true, then certainly this important thing is true. Is a contrast. And Jesus is saying, look, God is not like a corrupt politician. The one you're praying to is not like this judge. He's not like that at all. That means you don't have to sound like the woman. I hear applications of this parable all the time. Just keep praying. Just keep praying. Just pray it every day. Just beat down the doors of heaven. Just get as many people praying as you can. Get them all together, and maybe one of these days God's going to listen. But wait a minute, wait a minute. God is not like this politician, which means we don't have to be like the woman. Okay? Let's talk about application. Number one, 
These verses are not permission to pray however you want for whatever you want. Sorry to burst your bubble. And they do not guarantee that all your prayers will be answered. You may look at this parable on the surface and say, well, she persisted in prayer. And uh, the title of it says that she's a persistent widow. So that's like the noble characteristic of her in this passage. And so we should persist in prayer and eventually we get what we want. That's not the point of the parable. It's not saying pray for whatever you want, however you want to pray it, and then in the end, you're guaranteed results. Not the point at all. The Bible has a lot to say about how you pray. For example, you might just jot down Ecclesiastes 5. You can read that later today. Ecclesiastes 5 has some very clear instructions about how you should talk to God. And my guess is a lot of Christians would look at Ecclesiastes 5 and say, hmm, if that's right and true and applies to me, I probably need to change the way that I pray. Nothing Jesus says here says, okay, now forget about Ecclesiastes 5. It still applies. Earlier in the Gospel of Luke, we looked at Luke chapter 11. You can jot down Luke 11. In Luke 11, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus turned around and he said, when you pray, pray like this. And he gave them what we know as the Lord's Prayer. He gave them this model prayer. He's saying to them, you want to know how to pray? This is how you should do it. Nothing he says here wipes that out. You look at the woman in this parable and you say, well, clearly I'm supposed to identify with her somehow. She was just a persistent nag is that what I'm supposed to be doing? And is it some sort of guarantee that eventually she got what she wanted, I'll get what I want? It's not the point. You're not making a comparison, you're making a contrast. God's not like the corrupt judge, that means you don't have to be like the woman. And I could give you verse after verse of prayers that very godly people prayed where God said, no. They asked for something. Some of them very persistently. And God looked at him and said no. For example, Genesis 17. We talked about this in Sunday school if you're using the gospel project. At one point in his life, Abraham said to God, how about you just make Ishmael my heir? Please, make Ishmael my heir. And God looked at that plan and said, no. I'm not going to answer that prayer. 2 Samuel 12, David begged God to heal his son who was sick. And what was the answer? No. He didn't heal him. Exodus 32. The people had just worshipped a statue and Moses was praying for the people. And Moses prayed, God, let me die instead of the people. That was his prayer. He asked God for that to happen. Kill me instead of the people. And what did God say? No. That's not how I want to do it. 1 Kings 19. God prayed, excuse me, Elijah prayed that God would kill him. There's a low point in his life, and he just, he's talking to God, and he says, just kill me. Kill me. That's a dangerous thing to pray to God, by the way. But God looked at him and said, no. So God might say no. There's nothing in here that guarantees you can just be persistent enough to get your way with God. The second thing in application I want you to see is this. When you pray, you're talking to a loving father, not a corrupt politician. That means when you pray, you should not sound like this nagging widow. A loving father 
is who you're talking to, which means you don't have to sound like this widow. You really got to get this. And we've seen it every week in the Gospel of Luke. God in heaven is not like some kind of corrupt politician that you see down here on earth. He's the loving father, Luke 19.10, who sent his only son to seek you and to save you while you were his enemy, while you were lost. He went to the greatest length possible to enter into a relationship with you by sending Jesus to seek you and to save you. He's a loving father. He's not a, he's not a corrupt politician. And Jesus references that here in Luke 18. Look at Luke 18, verse 7. He says, will not God give justice to his elect, to those that he's chosen, to those that he loved them long before they ever loved God? He loved them first. He sent Jesus to seek them and to save them. That's the person that you're talking to. He's not some corrupt politician. He's a loving father. That means you don't have to nag. You don't have to just keep praying about the same thing every day for the rest of your life because sometimes God does say no. And can I tell you something else? Sometimes God tells his people, stop asking. You remember the story of Moses in Deuteronomy 5? Moses had gotten in trouble with God. He wasn't going to be allowed to enter the promised land. And time had gone on. And it was right almost the time for the people to cross. They were up on the mountain. They were looking down at the Jordan River. Jericho was in the horizon. It was about five miles away. They could see it with their eyes. Moses was looking at the promised land. And one last time, he's talking to God. He says, I know that you told me I can't go. Please, can I go? Please, can I? I'm looking at it right now. Like, I could just take off running. Please, can I go? And you know what God said, Deuteronomy 5? No, and don't ever ask me that again. Drop it. You don't need to nag me. Don't be like the widow. No is the answer. You remember Paul writing to the the Corinthians talking about the thorn in his flesh, whatever you think that thorn was, Paul says, I begged God to take it away. I begged God to take it away. I begged God to take it away. And not only did God say, no, I'm not going to take it away, but eventually he said, it's there because I want it to be there. I have a plan in it. You're asking me to change my plan. Do you know better than me? Do you know something I don't know? Are you good where I'm bad? Paul. I want it to be there. So we're praying to a loving father, which means you don't need to pray like this nagging widow. One last thing I just want you to think about. I don't want to beat you up over this, but I just want you to think. A lot of times I hear people talking about a certain crisis, and they want to rally a whole bunch of people to pray. Okay, Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with sending out emails and asking people to pray. We do that from the church office. We send out emails asking you to pray about things. Nothing wrong with getting on Facebook and saying, hey, man, there's a, this thing going on. We would appreciate your prayers. Nothing wrong with that. Here's where it goes wrong and gets off the track sometimes is where people start to imply or maybe they even say, we just need more people praying. We just need more people asking for God to do what we want him to do, and then maybe he'll do it. 
Really? Is God like that? Is he like a corrupt politician who only does the right thing when public pressure gets so great that he feels like he's backed into a corner? Is that what God's like? Is God like the the corrupt politician who says, I'm only going to do the right thing, not because it's right, but because there's so many signatures on this civic petition, now I'm going to do what you want me to do? I think what Jesus is saying here in contrasting the people in this parable is God's not like that. Is there anything wrong with asking for people to pray? No, you should do it. Is there anything wrong with getting a lot of people to pray? No. But you're off track when you start to think, well, we have so many people praying that surely God's going to listen to us. He's not like a corrupt politician. He's a loving father. It doesn't matter if you've got the whole world praying or you're just the widow praying. He's your loving father who listens to the prayers of his people. That brings us to number three. Unceasing prayer in your life should not be an attempt to talk God into your plans. And the flip side of that is that unceasing prayer is not annoying to God. The danger in looking at this parable when you understand how Jesus is using contrast, the danger is that you say, okay, don't be like the nagging woman. That means I should maybe pray about it once and then never again. But that's not what Jesus wants. What does he say up in verse 1? He says, I want you to always pray. Don't lose heart. Don't quit. Don't stop. I want you to persist in prayer. And he talks about in verse 7, the elect who are praying are praying day and night. This is an ongoing thing. You can jot down some of these verses and look at them later. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. Romans 12.12, persevere in prayer. Colossians 4.2, you should be devoted to prayer. Jesus doesn't want you to pray less. He just wants you to pray differently. He wants you to always be praying. But that does not mean you're trying to talk him into your plan. It doesn't. It also doesn't mean, as you're always praying, that you are annoying God. That may seem like a strange thing. For some of you, you say, prayer, annoying God. Listen, I talk to people on a regular basis, and they're struggling with something in their life. And they say these words out loud to me. I just feel like I'm bugging God. I feel like the stuff in my life is so small and so petty and so insignificant that to come to him, he's on the throne of the universe, he's keeping the stars and the planets whirling around in space, he's making sure everything is just right on earth for us to live, he's got a lot on his table, on his plate. I just feel like I'm kind of bothering him with my small little stuff. If you feel that way, there may be a couple of problems. One problem is you may be thinking of God not as a loving father, but as some corrupt politician who gets annoyed easily. He's not like that. He's a loving father. The other possible problem is that you are actually nagging. You're not praying, you're just nagging. And you're trying to arm twist God into doing what you want him to do. And that's not what Jesus is advocating here. We're not trying to talk God into our plans and our prayers, even though they're unceasing or not annoying to God. I read an interesting historical tidbit that the Jewish rabbis around the time Jesus was living, they had a a little intramural debate about how many times a day you should pray. And when I first started reading about this, I thought, well, the rabbis, and they came up with all these legalistic, pharisaical rules, they probably wanted you to pray all day long. No, 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 no. 
the consensus was in Jesus' day that you should only pray three times a day. That was the max. You get three prayers a day. You better make them good. Because if you, it's like timeouts in a football game. If you've used them up and you get to crunch time and you really need one, sorry, you can't do it. You've got to wait till tomorrow. Three prayers. And they based it off of Daniel 6.10 where they uh, read about Daniel praying three times a day with his window open towards Jerusalem. And they said, Daniel's a good guy. You can at least do it that many times. But if you did it any more than that, if you did it four times, that would just be annoying to God. That would just be bothersome to God. And so this is what they taught the people. Three times a day, you're allowed to pray and to talk to God. And Jesus walks into that and he says, look, I want you to always be praying day and night, unceasing. Talk to him. He's not some corrupt politician who's going to be annoyed with you. He's your father who loves you and cares about you. And that brings us to number four. Jesus expects the prayers of his people to be rooted or grounded in genuine faith. And Jesus modeled this for us on the cross. When you pray, he wants you to pray from a position of genuine faith. We'll talk about what that means. And he shows you exactly what it looks like as he's on the cross. Look at the last part of our passage, Luke 18, 8. It's kind of a strange way to end. He says, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. That's the father who loves the elect will give justice to them speedily. You don't have to worry about that. Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, will he find faith on earth? Kind of a strange statement. Like, whoa, what do you mean, will he find faith on earth? It sounds like Jesus is saying, when I come back, it's kind of iffy if there's going to be any believers or not. Is anyone going to be a Christian or are all the churches going to be empty? I don't know. Which is strange because elsewhere in Matthew, Jesus said to the disciples, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. There will be believers. They're not going to run out of Christians. The church will be triumphant. And now he says, will, will the Son of Man be able to find faith on earth? And he's doing a couple of things here. He's not questioning whether or not there will be any Christians at the second coming. What he's saying is, the kind of prayer that I have in mind is prayer related to my return. Remember he said, Luke 17, verse 22, the day's coming where you will long for me to come and it's not going to happen. Keep praying about it. Keep praying about it. Always pray. Don't ever lose heart. And at the end of this parable, as he asks this question, he's also saying something important to the disciples. He's saying, there's a really important connection between your faith in your prayers. Your faith in your prayers. Listen to me. When you pray to God, it must be from a position of genuine faith. Meaning, you come before God in prayer and you believe in the depths of who you are that God is good regardless of your circumstances. You bring your request to him, but you come from that position, you say, I believe that he is good. You come from the position of faith saying, I believe he knows way more than I know. I'm about to ask you to do this or to do that or to change this or to change that. But listen, you know way more than I know. That's got to be the foundation of your prayers. You've got to come from a position of faith believing that God will do in your life what is right and what is best. 
and you have requests of him or petitions of him or, or things you want to bring to him, that's great. But underneath all that, you're coming saying, I trust you that you're going to do what's right and you're going to do what's best. And you say, well, what does that look like in real life? Well, look how Jesus did it because he did it perfectly. Luke 19.10, he came to the earth to seek and to save the lost. That was his mission. Luke 9.51, he turned and he set his face. I'm going to Jerusalem. When I get there, I'm going to die. I know what's going to happen. There's no questions about it. I am going there to die. This is a death march. And the night before he dies, he's in the garden, and what does he pray? He prays this, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He brings his request, but underneath it is rock-solid faith to say, your plan is your plan's the best. I'm not quite sure about this right now, but your plan is the best. And you look at Jesus dying on the cross, and you think about the things that he prayed from the cross. One of the things he prayed is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? doesn't sound very faith-filled until you realize that in the very next breath, Jesus cries out and he says, Father, not just God, but Father, I'm committing my spirit into your hands. I trust you. I believe you. I have faith in you. Yes, he prayed, is there any other way we can do this? Yes, he prayed, it feels like you've completely forsaken me. But underneath all of it was rock-solid faith in God. And Jesus is saying, that's what I want from you. Because I did that, because I prayed with that kind of faith, you have been found and you have been saved. And when you talk to God, you're not coming to some corrupt politician who only does the right thing when it's advantageous for himself. You're coming to a father who loves you. And so you come to him and you come in faith. And you bring your request. You come day and night. You come always. You never tire in praying, in bringing these requests to God. But underneath all of it, your understanding is God's going to do what's right. And he's going to do what's best. And he's out for my best interest. Regardless of what my circumstances tell me or my situation tells me, he's out for my good. And I trust him in that. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful that Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross, that he came to seek us and to save us, that in the midst of accomplishing our salvation, he shows us the ultimate picture of what it looks like to pray. Father, help us to understand that you are nothing like this corrupt judge. Help us to understand that we don't have to pray like this, this persistent woman. Father, give us wisdom as we think about how to pray, as we think about when to pray, as we think about what to pray. Help us to not lose heart. Help us to never give up. Father, we thank you that we have hope of talking to our Father who loves us. And we pray for those who are here this morning who maybe think of you as some sort of corrupt politician, and we pray that you would save them today that you would remove the scales from their eyes and that they would see clearly that you're no corrupt judge, but you're our loving Father who sent Jesus to seek us and to save us. Father, we come to you in prayer and in worship 
only through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have accomplished everything that needs to be accomplished for our salvation and that you invite us into a relationship as, as children with a loving parent. Father, be honored as we continue in worship and in prayer this morning. We love you and we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.